0: So it's not about creating an object or even a sculpture. It's about engaging a community. It's about sculpting a society. And if through my art, I can help you understand the Higgs boson or the power of pollinators, or the fact that there were a bunch of people other than a white Spaniard that created our state's history, then I'm helping sculpt the society.
1: Hello and welcome to Arts in AI, the podcast produced by Creative Pinellas. I'm Barbara St. Clair, your host, talking to Xavier Cortada, who is an eco-artist is that how you describe yourself or
0: so th- i mean, i'm an artist right You're an artist. i love that i love that role sometimes i do eco-art there are many definitions depending on who's envisioning it but it's an artist working with a scientist or a practitioner okay. to engage community to effectuate change and again changing the way we see our world could be that but in uh in the eco-art world it really is more about helping restore ecosystems or clean, you know, engage in bioremediation. So that's what a lot of eco artists do. Artists with a artist. socially engaged environmental practice or socially engaged eco art practice might be a better way.
1: It is good that you are sort of unraveling that statement a bit because you do work with scientists mm-hmm. and you you worked with in, at
0: CERN. Yeah, so the Large Hadron Collider.
1: And so that's a, a project, an engineering and physicists, and mm-hmm. you work with botany and biology yeah, and, and evolution, and then you work with installation art, performance art. A lot of
0: molecular biologists along the way. So yeah, there's there's a lot of different work that I do. And in, in many ways, it's because I'm curious about these things. And science provides a mental roadmap to better understand them. And then art provides my vehicle to disseminate the passion. What my art does is it Helps us reframe our way of thinking about our place in this world. Understand that there's this underground cathedral called CERN where thousands of people have worked across 42 nations and 182 universities just to try to develop a little bit more knowledge to help us understand the universe. The, the idea of, as an artist, uh, using my craft to help us understand that that's an important endeavor makes us much more human, the same way a Rothko painting makes us more human just by being in its presence. So I think as an artist, I try my very best to understand that and, and communicate that. And a lot of what I try to do is, is help us understand that we're part of a long process as mm-hmm. human beings, mm-hmm. that we are interconnected with those who came before us and those that will learn from whatever path we put them on and continue growing. There's an exhibit called Florida Is, and it takes uh, some of the work that I've been working on for years, including Endangered World, a project I started at the South Pole in 2007 by planting 24 flags with the names of 24 animals that were struggling to survive across 24 time zones in the world above, continued as a project at the North Pole a year later, where I spoke out the name of not 24, but 360 animals in the direction down the longitude where they lived in the world below and struggled to survive, to bring awareness to the sixth mass extinction that we are undergoing right now. Those names, the 360 animals, I worked with biologists. I worked with graduate biology students. I gave them some parameters. I wanted to have a diverse group of animals that I could feature as part of an art project. That same group of animals, the 360 animals, were then painted as flags at Biscayne National Park for a mile-long installation during a bio-blitz where scientists were counting the different species in that underwater national park of ours at the tip of our peninsula, and created an installation where every one of 360 participants committed to engage in an eco-action, local action, to lower their carbon footprint in order to act uh, locally and impact globally. So they would adopt one of these 360 animals from halfway across the world by engaging in an action to help uh, our planet. And that, that would be eco-art in it that it was informed by scientists, it was at a national park, and they created, they engaged 360 individuals to physically do something, to lower their carbon footprint as a way of helping us bioremediate. And then I created drawings of these animals, and I did those uh, back uh, in Facebook, so every day I was a different animal. So my Mm -hmm. profile picture was the animal I drew. It also includes prints of some drawings I did on carbon paper. I decided to focus in on the 17 endangered animals that live at Biscayne National Park. So I drew them uh, using carbon paper to make a point and that is that the park has some islands, barrier islands, but it's mostly underwater. It's connected to Miami Beach. We may think that by creating a park and preserving that park, we have protected these animals, but just like carbon paper, where you can write on one piece of paper and impact another one that you don't Mm -hmm. physically touch, Mm -hmm. you can do stuff on South Beach or on Miami and have a profound impact across the artificial boundary of a nature preserve or a national park. The other component of the exhibit takes a residency I had at the Rauschenberg Foundations in Captiva, where I was looking at sea level rise. And I was thinking about our state, which is defined by its coastline as a state that's in peril because of all the pollutants that we're putting into the atmosphere and creating all these greenhouse gases that trap heat and uh, change our climate in a dramatic way, including the melting of our polar caps. I was there with a confab, a group of artists and writers, thinking about the issue. And I was thinking about what is Florida? A lot of our focus uh, was very Florida-centric. What would happen to Rauschenberg's estate covers the entire swath of the island, you know, from one side to the other. How does that estate begin planning, you know, as sea levels rise? And I extrapolated from that, well, how is Florida planning? Like, what are we as a state doing? So I created a series of performances there, but I also developed an idea for a public art commission I had across Florida's turnpikes. I was asked to create art for Florida's turnpikes, and I thought to create endangered animals at the uh, Fort Drum Station. It's the second largest plaza in the nation and then i was thinking of the disney stop in near orlando thought of the sunshine state and how we don't use enough solar power so i created a series of installations for this station where i created a sunrise at the east sort of northern entrance to the plaza and a sunset on the uh, western southbound station to the plaza and in between had a sky full of diatoms which harness the power of the sun to take those pollutants and make them into oxygen. They do photosynthesis, a single cell algae. And the rays of the suns were also made with diatoms as a way of raising awareness about the research that scientists engage in to address sea level rise here in our state, funded by tourism, but Doomed by sea level rise, and put sunrises and sunshines to uh, remind us that these if these little creatures can do it. Can harness the power of the Sunshine State's sun to do good. We, through our policy makers, should be able to do that with alternative fuels, with you know, with nat- with natural energy and not fossil fuels. We should have building codes that demand, in fact, insist on on solar roofs as part of building. So Florida is water. Florida is sunshine. Florida is absolutely flowers. It's literally named Flor, is a Spanish name for flowers. So Florida is wildflowers. In developing the public art piece, I looked at a Google map of the West Palm Beach Turnpike Plaza. It looked like a very developed, hyper dense area, and I thought we need to do something. Drop some seed bombs from the sky and try to figure out how to bring nature back into these beautifully manicured lawns so that the pollinators have something to feed on and we can continue to grow our state. The piece at that station is a series of puzzle pieces that make up an image of Florida wildflowers. And the idea is, is that we have a puzzled landscape. If you look at a Google map, it's a puzzled landscape. And that by each of us engaging in actions to help regrow our native wildflowers, our native canopy, we can help create Florida. So Florida is is this exhibit that shows the digital images that I use to create these large-scale public art pieces for millions of people to see as they were buying their Dunkin' Donuts at mm-hmm. the plazas or mm-hmm. going to the bathroom. Right, so at least right. that they could see this, you know. Right. And those are projected on the wall along with images of other public art pieces that I've created. In the state, and the website that captures all of that is floridaisnature.com. And through that website, I invite individuals to, just like I did, capture what Florida means to them, take photographs of natural Florida, and upload it along with a message online so that they themselves, just like I'm an eco emissary, using whatever real estate I can. I'm fortunate enough to have turnpike plazas at my real estate, but I'm creating a digital platform uh, so that people can upload their pictures of nature. And I, and I want us to do that, because too often we um, walk around and we just take nature for granted. We don't even understand how interconnected and important it is, which is why it's so easy to bulldoze it. If all of a sudden we elevate and celebrate Florida's ecosystems, then I think we build a better state. So in 2013, I wanted to um, commemorate a date that the state was very interested in commemorating, and that's Ponce de Leon's landing. When he put his banner on our state, everything changed. Everything from the species that he intentionally and inadvertently brought onto our land, down to the structures of government and ways of of thinking and acting and worldviews that came with the missions and then uh, the colony and eventually the states that was created. And along the way, we developed air conditioning and machines that dredge, you know, wetlands, and have built ourselves a pretty hyper-populated state. And as a gift to my state on its birthday, instead of cutting a dozen roses and giving them a dozen roses, I decided to plant 500 wildflower gardens, the very same wildflowers that were around when he touched ground. It's called Floor 500. So I went to a bunch of botanists from across the state, including here at the University of South Florida. I asked our botanist to give me 500 wildflowers. I divided the state into eight regions. I had a website, floor500.com, that featured the wildflowers, its range, everything you needed to know about the wildflower. Then I worked with curators at various universities, art professors, to ask them to f- help me find 500 Florida artists to depict those wildflowers. Mm-hmm. So if you go to the website, uh, you'll see the photo of the wildflower with all the scientific information about it and a link to a website. But then you'll also see an artist page with information about the artist and artist statements and the artist depiction of that wildflower. And I did that because I wanted to engage my fellow artists as a... Uh, protagonists in this conversation about understanding the importance and the beauty of Florida's natural ecosystems. Armed with that, I then went to history museums all over the state. Provide me with 500 names of 500 individuals who helped shape Florida history. Because to me, Florida history didn't start with Ponce de Leon. I look at history and our lives as a continuum. So we had 500 individuals, 500 little brief bios that we uploaded onto the website talking about the history of Florida across the entire state, across 500 years. So with the history of Florida, with the art of Florida and with the science of Florida, then I went out to the community and asked 500 people to Mm. plant 500 gardens dedicated to one of those 500 historic figures the gardens were important for the very purpose that they are helping bioremediate but also because they're helping engage and educate they're very public mm-hmm. so now people get mm-hmm. to see the garden read and learn about the person the garden was created for and get to enjoy the ecosystem services provided by that very garden
1: it's really interesting to me as uh, you were describing i started making a list of all of the elements that you're bringing to the table in an art project. There's the thing in itself, then there's the science behind it, then there's the created thing, then there's the engagement and the protagonists. and then there's the social media interaction, and mm-hmm. then there's the physical interaction, and the doing thing, and, and it's this sort of multiple, multiple dimensional exploration of an art project. Mm-hmm. Each one in itself has a project sort of sense, but they all tie together as this really complex ball of moving part project.
0: And in a sense, it's because that's what we are. And one of the things that I uh, most lament about artists in the art world is that they are such segregationists, not understanding how complex and how powerful a voice we have outside a white cube. Joseph Boyce coined a term called social sculpting, which is literally what this is. So it's not about creating an object or even a sculpture. It's about engaging a community. It's about sculpting a society. And if through my art, I can help you understand the Higgs boson or the power of pollinators, or the fact that there were a bunch of people other than a white Spaniard that created our state's history, then I'm helping sculpt the society Mm -hmm. to think in a more inclusive way, to think in a way that understands, it's a more science-literate way, in a way that understands the value of democracy and the role of an individual in a democratic society. I mean, the reason none of this feels foreign to me as an artist is because that's how art started in the first place, that's what art is. When we emerged out of Africa as a species and then began populating our planet, and started evolving our brains so that we could have abstract thoughts. Tools that they used to build their societies and their cultures was art. You know, that is the legacy I was born into as an artist. It's not about selling you my painting. That is cheapening right. what I do. There's a whole life purpose and role of an artist to help us not just understand society, but to help build society. So I use art as a vehicle to help build community. And that's why it's so integrated and so expansive and so engaged, and in many ways even improvised mm-hmm. because I'm letting the community you know, take, take lead. A lot of what I do starts with indignation, but through a series of processes where you make the phone call, you meet someone, you figure out how to problem solve, you invite other partners, you come up with a solution, you fine tune that to make it better you learn from your mistakes, you grow it, and then you continue and continue. You create these these engaged processes. So you're learning from the community, the community is learning from you. And to me, that's literally what I'm trying to do with the work. When I first applied for the South Pole artist residency. I was looking at a lot of cultural issues. I was thinking of my dad's journey to, you know, to South Florida as a Cuban refugee in 1962. He was 22. And just how isolated that must have felt. I had done a lot of work on migrations and ancestral journeys with Spencer Wells and the National Geographic Project. And I was sort of just thinking a little bit about how this is the one continent that we never colonized as humans. There wasn't an indigenous population, in Antarctica, Antarctica, right, it's yes. the only one. So I thought of it as, as, a, as a place, I mean, always environmentally as a place that was the proverbial canary in a coal mine, but I went there talking also about sociological issues, about what our world would look like in 150,000 years, there was a whole way of looking at long time and I created an installation with a mangrove about a long time. But it was really the, the work of the Reclamation Project, which had started in 2004, 2005, but became an eco-art project in April of 2006, before going to the pole, that really began helping me frame and um, rebuild a practice that had, to that point, that with social issues exclusively. Violence, racism, uh, juvenile justice, AIDS, homophobia, uh, poverty, people uh, who are marginalized, all of a sudden started paying attention and focusing on this global issue of climate. In 2008, I went to the North Pole as part of a New York Foundation for the Arts Grant. I wanted to um, replicate some of the projects I had created at the South Pole. At the South Pole, I did something called a longitudinal installation where I put 24 pairs of shoes and recited quotes from 24 individuals affected by climate change in the world above. So I replicated that at the North Pole using women's shoes. But I also thought of another project because a year earlier, a Russian submarine had gone underneath the sea ice floating above the North Pole and a little robot arm from that submarine put a little flag and declared the North Pole for Russia, like Mm. a 15th century colonial power. And I just thought that was absurd on its face, but it was also one of those indignation moments because the only reason the Russians or the Americans or the Norwegians want to claim this body of floating sea ice is because they want the sea ice to disappear so that they can use it for mining and for navigation routes. Which I find to be absurd because those ships are gonna to get to ports that will be submerged because the melting ice would have raised the sea level. So I decided to launch my own campaign where I would reclaim the North Pole and claim it for nature. So I took a green flag and I planted it smack at 90 degrees north. And the idea goes like this. By planting trees in the world below, carbon gets sequestered into the roots and bark of that tree, which means that we'll lower our greenhouse gases, which means the planet won't warm up as much, which means the ice won't thaw, which means the sea ice will be there, which means we literally reclaim the North Pole because we keep it from the navigation routes. So I launched this campaign where I would ask people to plant a green flag and a native tree at their home as a way of engaging their neighbors in doing the exact same thing, planting native trees. And the reason the green flag, which had a white leaf and a top of the white leaf, it says, I hereby reclaim this land for nature, was because I wanted people to reclaim their front yards and in so doing, reclaim the North Pole and the entire planet Earth for nature. The green flag is basically a weird or strange object that we have people plant next to a tree to bring attention to the act that they planted as tree. The planting of the tree is a performance act. The actor acts as a reverse conquistador. They plant a tree and a green flag and reclaim their front land that used to be wilderness for nature by planting a piece of a uh, native tree canopy there and then the green flag becomes a conspicuous reminder that hopefully will let neighbors query about what is a green flag doing right. in your front yard right. and hopefully engage other neighbors to do the same thing over and over again. When I brought it to our community here, we called it the Reclamation Project mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. we had a bunch of green flags in mm-hmm. the Reclamation Project, it was an action of using performative work. It's the social sculpting of Joseph Boys of having these participants not help me paint a mural, but literally help me educate an entire community through their volunteerism and through their planting. I worked here at Pinellas County as part of the Public Art Commission to plant 750 trees with the Native Plant Society and using this universal language that we basically built our society on. A language called art culture, to help convey those ideas. A lot of people who have an engaged practice have to understand that there's a lot of navigation and work and working in community and you you know how to get the resources to do things. to so what institutions do you partner with? Do you write grants? Where are your archives? How do you disseminate information? How do you keep your volunteers engaged? There's newsletters, there's information, there's all all this other stuff. So a little bit of the tension is is that I also try to make it as participatory and as inviting and as unscripted as I can so that people feel comfortable, so that they themselves can innovate within the project. Because, you know, I partner with equals, you know, I partner with museums, I partner with, with environmental groups, right? And not all of the partners necessarily understand or see art in the same way. I, I still am approached by folks who are very interested in, in me painting about something, not understanding that I have all these other tools that help them do more than just what my painting could do. So I try as best as I can to listen and to be open and to be, you know, malleable. When art historian, Mary Jo Eggerson, writing about my practice, talked about me as a choreographer. Cause what I'm doing is engaging people in this dance, right? Right. And it's like, how do we get all these moving parts, you know, to sort of come together to uh, do this beautiful movement. And I also, how do you keep the stuff that you created uh, alive while you're trying to move forward and innovate new things? And that's also attention too. So I uh, I am living, understanding all these challenges which are much more complicated than painting something beautiful and finding a gallery to sell it to someone. And I'm not dismissing that. I mean, that's a beautiful practice. But too often, that's what people think art and artists are. And that is so last century. (laughs) That's so two centuries ago. You know what I mean? And I just, and I just, I'm trying my best to, to honor and respect that. And I am not dismissing it. I paint paintings and I still sign my paintings. People don't. I still sign them. I'm I'm totally understanding that. I'm just saying that for those who want a professional career in the arts, I hope that through my practice I can help model what different variations are of that practice. Well, I'll tell you the funny thing later, but let me start off with something really serious, and that is sea level rise. And I do believe that in Florida, we don't really need to worry about our politicians helping us address sea level rise. We don't even need to change policy or even innovate, because we actually have the answer in our hands. I've come up with five solutions to address sea level rise, and they're very simple. Sea level rise is a violent act. It is... Oceans coming and taking over our space. It's really trespass. So I think one thing you do is you walk to the water's edge and just kick the crap out of it. <laughs> You yeah, violence. violence, meet violence. Right. It, every Floridian, we have, you know, millions just, of citizens. Just, Kick the crap out yeah. of it. It will recede. It will walk. It will, it,
1: Why am I sort of skeptical <laughs> about this?
0: Oh, it's because you're a pacifist. So I'll give you another way. If that doesn't work, then it, it happened upon me. I was boiling an egg and I got busy, you know, posting stuff on Facebook. And before I know it, I started smelling smoke. The water had evaporated from my saucepan. I just thought if every Floridian were to set the ocean ablaze, the ocean would evaporate and the sea wouldn't yes. come and take us over. But you're looking at me as if that, that won't make sense because, of course, there's laws against arson. So let's let's think of another idea. I, I came up with a third one, and that had to do with having excess stuff. So every now and then there's extra food on your plate and um, you don't know what to do with it, so you eat it. That's why you get fat. But you know what? Right now, we have to get fat for Florida. Like, there's excess water coming. Just eat it up. Go to the water's edge and uh, eat it. But, of course, that also is going to make you pee. So, a fourth solution, I think this is really a smart one, is the reason the water's coming here, and Floridians don't know this, is because sea ice is melting, making the waters warmer so that the freshwater glaciers, which are above land, start calving and falling into the ocean, and that actually elevates the water. So the problem is is that the glaciers are melting, so I think the real way to do this is by taking ice trays out of your refrigerator, those of us that still have them, mm-hmm. and then turning the rising seas back into glaciers. Just f- to ice. one right?
1: little ice cube one
0: at a time. One ice cube at a time. I mean, I th- I th- I, th- I think you're dismissing this, but think about it. There's millions of Floridians each ice Cube tray has how many things? Is it twelve or eight? Look, I know they're plastic, and I know that there's also a lot of you know fossil fuels. You well, you're right. There's a lot of fossil fuels used, which means we'll melt more glaciers. So I think the fifth and most actually the most Florida specific way of addressing this problem is to take our heads out of the sand and instead dig a hole in that sand and put all the water in that hole. And that's how you take care of the problem. Dig a big hole down to the core of the earth and (laughs) put all the water inside. I mean, we're used to this. You know, we put our heads in the sand, we might as well put the water in there too. Or we could elect uh, political leaders who will have the courage to fight industry and to fight lobbyists and to fight all the individuals that are stopping the sunshine state from harnessing the power of the sun to bring us clean energy and to save our property, our equity, our nature, our ecosystems, and our civilization from demise. And think about Floridians, the present and the future. If you believe that you your role is that of an activist, you're not gonna give a narrow slice of society power over your voice so too often if all you care about is appeasing a collector or a curator then you're limiting your speech you're basically narrowing who you are i believe in art having a job to do other people believe in arts for art's sake and i I, i'm okay with that you know it's just a different kind of practice and all i'm saying is that if i were to pigeonhole my practice to try to just appease a small segment I would be doing a disservice to what I believe the real power of an artist is. I really believe that, especially you're going to see that in the coming decades, as Florida begins to contend with some really horrible things that, that are going to make our race riots look like dance parties. As sea level rise happens, as there's a lack of equity in how resources are gonna be distributed, as whole neighborhoods are gonna become water reservoirs for the rising seas, and whole communities are going to suffer immense loss. As ecosystems begin to collapse, as refugees, climate refugees start coming to our peninsula, there is going to be the need for some leadership that can use different ways of engaging and communicating. And it is my hope that there are a cadre of artists out there who look at the world holistically and who have these tools that they can use to help navigate society out of the chaos that is to come. I mean, it is coming and we need thinkers, you know, protagonists who help solve this problem. And I think artists help us do that. Right now, this artist is trying to help society be more science literate, believe the science, and be more politically engaged to be a better, more engaged citizen. And that kind of activism is called slow activism. And that's where I'm sitting right now. So like a slow activism, you know, my hope is that this podcast, two or three art students, will go, oh, wow, that's interesting. And you know, by the time they get to get out of grad school, they'll be doing something similar to this, clearly in their own design. And then those will have bigger ripples and that we can help heal our state as that happens.
1: We've been talking to Xavier Cortada, who is an artist and a professor at Florida International University in Miami. Thank you so very much. My pleasure. I'm Barbara St. Clair, and you've been listening to Arts In, the Creative Pinellas Podcast, sponsored in part by the Pinellas County Board of County Commissioners. Visit St. Petersburg Clearwater and the State of Florida Department of Cultural Affairs. Arts in is produced by Matt and Sheila Cowley. And if you're enjoying this program, we hope you'll take a moment to give us a review. It's easy to subscribe to on your favorite podcast service. You can find more conversations with visual, literary, and performing artists and in-depth arts journalism at creativepinellas.org. Thank you for listening.